Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Movember Radio. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly podcast where we focus on men's health and the issues that men face today. Each week, we speak with someone from the Movember community, a community which is over 5 million Mo bros and sisters around the world. Each week, we speak with someone who's passionate about changing the face of men's health. To make sure you never miss an episode, just subscribe on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. And of course, at MovemberRadio.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Today, my guest is wheelchair racer, Paralympian, author, athlete, high school phys ed teacher, and dad, Kurt Fernley. Follow him on Twitter. He's at K-U-R-T-F-E-A-R-N-L-E-Y. Kurt is one of the most successful athletes of our generation across the board. Check this out. He has started 58 marathons he's had 37 wins 16 places he's only missed the podium five times kurt was born without parts of his lower spine and without a sacrum and at the time of his birth he was given less than a week to live kurt has just turned 34 kurt's story is how he has thrived in his life is nothing short of inspirational and today he shares with us his thoughts on resilience his winning mindset and the series of events that led him to hook up with Movember and crawl nearly 100 kilometers through impenetrable jungle, the full length of the Kokoda track. It's an honor to bring you this conversation with Kurt Fernley. I'm thrilled that we could speak today. Kurt, where do we find you today? Uh, home, thank goodness. Home, yeah. So I usually, it's very rare that I get a stretch of time that I get to stay at home a bit, but I've got one more day here, so it's it's good times. And what part of what part of the world is home for you? Newcastle. Okay, so that's uh, about an hour and a bit north of uh, north of Sydney. Great surf there. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, the, the the one downfall might be you might have a twelve month old running screaming at some point during the yarn, but I'm pretty sure his mum's got him under control. Oh no, but... look, that's okay. We're a family show for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> so you live in Newcastle, but. This is Newcastle's a long way from the town you grew up in, right? Well, it's about five hours. <laughs> well, for for people listening overseas, five hours is you know you could be in another country. Yeah, but for Australia, five hours is still within shooting distance. You know, <laughs> like you can you can still be there in a day if if things go wrong. You can pack your car and be there. And I don't find it too far. You know, like as long as you don't have to catch a flight, then I'm pretty good with it. What uh, can you tell us about the place you grew up? Karkor, mate, two hundred and fifty people. And shrinking, she's. She, it's like, I don't know. It's like a place where 
everything just kind of passed by. You know, I only went out there a couple of weekends ago and I crawled up one of the hills around there and it's in this tiny little valley and, you know, nothing's changed since when I was a kid. Just there's a little less kids running around, you know, but otherwise it's just the same old peaceful little part of part of Australia. It's beautiful. Are you from a big family, Kurt? Yeah, so mum and dad, um, we've got five kids in my family. Dad had was one of 10, I think. Mum was one of five, and, and we were one of the smallest of that generation. So most of my cousin's family are six kids strong or so, so I'm, uh, I'm a pretty big tribe. And what number do you come in in the birth order? I, I was the, the last of our, our siblings. Yeah. <laughs> You're number five. I'm two of four. So, okay. uh, yeah, I know, I know what it's like to, yeah, the fridge is... Fight never... for your meal? Oh, dude. <laughs> My girlfriend's just like, she's like, why do you eat so fast? I mean, you don't understand. Yeah, and it's, and it's like, wait, boy, you, you just speak so well when you're around lots of people. I'm like, man, you do, you do have, oh, I didn't grow up with five people trying to buddy get their word in, you know? Yeah, it does. I guess it makes you, you know, kind of forthright. Certainly, in, in my family, it did. What, what your upbringing is that were quite different from a lot of other people. That it's it was so rural, so intimate, so many people knew everybody, and so it was quite very much a community upbringing. I'm assuming. What, what was it about how you grew up that helped make you what you are today, Kurt? Well, I don't, I don't really think of it as people knowing what I was doing. Like they were, everyone was family. You know, like you went up the street and. You know, if they weren't your uncle and auntie, you called them uncle and auntie. Everyone was invested in each other's kids, you know? Like, we all... It was, I think, the one thing I feel guilty about, really, is that I won't be able to ever replicate that. I won't be able to replicate that for my young fella now that he's grown up. Because I think that when you've got a group of people all around you that are part of this community and really investing in in everyone, then, geez, it just makes life a little bit easier and a little bit more, like... I don't know, rewarding or safer maybe because, you know, like you can always, you know that help's always just around the corner. You know that you can extend yourself fairly far because there's no one waiting to to take advantage. Everything was was really heavily community kind of centred. Mate, that sounds sounds quite lovely. But, I mean, I guess I, I, when I think, just to rewind for a second, I think about my youngest brother. As the youngest, I'm, I'm sure you copped a bit of a punishing from the older ones in your family. <laughs> yeah, and they would say I probably didn't cop as much as I should have or as, as much as they did, you know, but it, it, it kind of went in, went in waves, you know. Like my, my eldest probably got a firmer hand from my parents and the youngest got a firmer hand from the brothers and siblings, you know. So uh, it, all, it all works out, but... You know, rough and tumble. I think was a, it was really good for me. You know, it was it was a mix of a bit of hardship, but also open kind of care as well. Maybe more so because I had this disability that was so visual. You know, that that, that people knew that I would need help, so they they always made themselves available. And when you're in, a, in such a small community, I mean, it's not like you know. I know certainly when I grew up, and I'm I'm older than you, Kurt. But but when I grew up, the kids that were born with a disability that all shipped off to another school somewhere, and we never really kind of. And this was the '70s, man. It was a different time. But, no, well, it was in the '80s as well, you know. And we still do have, we still do have some issues with institutions and disability in Australia. There still are institutions that have 400 people with disabilities in there 24-7, seven days a week, waiting for the rest of their lives. Like, that's the reality of disability in Australia is not quite there yet. But when I was a kid, I guess education was, was segregated still, even early 80s. My family were fortunate that they really wanted me to go 
to a mainstream school. They wanted this idea of normality, you know. My principal was the one that fought for me through that period of time, and he he ensured that I got to go through Kharkov Public mm. with my brothers and sisters and, you know, cousins, and my uncles went through there. One of my grandparents went through there. I think that I'm a constant product of people who have stood up for me and, and really fought for me when I couldn't really fight for myself, you know. I, I am a I am a product of uh, when community makes sure that it never passes by the individual. It always fights for that one person. So uh, extremely grateful, you know. At what, at what point was it that sport became of interest to you? Some kids, it starts super early. How old were you? I love sport. Like, crawled around and played footy. Um, when I was five or six, my uncle was coaching New South Wales and Australia in rugby league. Wow. Um, yeah, so I grew up watching Uncle Terry do his thing and always believing that I would follow in his footsteps, you know. I thought that I'd be playing at that stage in the ARL, and, and although I was crawling around, no one really... No one told me different. You know, I did cross countries. I did every sport that was available there. And, and then my teacher, when I was about 13, sports started to become pretty divisive. And then my teacher called out a, uh, a, a wheelchair basketball day. She called out 20 wheelchairs to my school and she uh, she put my mates and peers and brothers and sisters in wheelchairs. And, you know, I, I saw sport for what it's meant to be and, mate, fell in love with it. And I've been in love with it ever since. So it sounds like that person was quite instrumental in the role and the path he took. Yeah, Dicko, Mrs. Dixon, her name is, and she refuses to, she refuses to take any of the acknowledgement that I try and give her. That one person who makes that phone call on the behalf of someone else, you know, that's why I became a teacher. I'm a trained PDHPE, a high school teacher. But that one person, that one teacher, that, that invests not in the mark, you know, like she, she wasn't. She actually told me. She said that I'm not. I'm not a HSE result. I'm not a one to a hundred. The, the thing that is my strength is that I have this desire to be someone in sport. And um, that desire, once it goes on to anything, I'll be whoever I want to be. And she, she, not, she, she just give me those kind of kind words or empowering words as well as, you know, that one five-minute phone call and it's changed my life. You talked before about your Uncle Terry coaching the Australian Rugby League team and you going, oh, one day I'll do that. When... When did this concept of self-belief kind of come and become ingrained into your way of being? I think it was the belief of people around me as well. I remember this one time, my brother, he picked me up when I was, uh, was probably about three. And I was worried about, I saw all of my family, it would have been about 12 of them, walk away from the house at about seven in the morning. And they were all going rabbiting, as you do when you grow up in the bush in Australia. Probably not, not as uh, palatable to talk about it at the moment, but it was seeing them go away and, and I, I thought that I was left behind because I was in a chair and he ran back and picked me up and you know, yelled out to mum that Kurt's coming with us and for the entire time I was on his shoulders as he's carrying me across to catch everyone and we're talking maybe 10k away from home in just paddock after paddock after paddock and he's telling me the whole way that I can be whoever I want to be you can do anything you can do anything you know and he then would put me on the ground and and he would say remember I'm not going to do it all for you and he made me kind of make my way through fences and cross rivers and 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 you know get a bit of hardship in there as well but I don't know mate when people tell you that you can you can be anyone you can do anything from such a young age and you know belief in the people around you and and receiving that I think that's just powerful, man. And, and you, you may you may tell a thousand people, but that one kid or that one 
I was beyond a kid. I was almost a toddler, you know, being repetitively told that I'm strong. You know, I just think that I started to believe it, you know. And what about this idea of, of resilience? Because you only have to look at your career, your athletic career, let alone the things that you've done for charity, particularly with the Kokoda track, which we'll talk about later. What does resilience mean to you, Kurt? Resilience is resilience to me is a muscle like anything else. It's a, it's a part of you. Um, I, f- I feel like resilience and pride, you can manipulate them as much as any part of the body. You can, you can build them, you can tear them down, you know, like um, when you remind yourself every day that you're strong enough to partake in whatever activity that you're doing, you are building your resilience. When you remind yourself every day that you are, that you are strong, that you are beautiful, that you love the parts of you, that, you know, sometimes they're the parts that people will see as, you know, weakness or, or your disability or, or fragility, or they see that they, they can't see it as this beautiful thing. But when you tell yourself that it is beautiful, you know, when you tell yourself that it is strong, you know, that's, that's building that pride and it's building that resilience. And it's, you know, it's something that I have had built in me from the people around me, but I've also put a lot of time into making sure that I am strong. And when I think about myself, when I see myself, that's the one thing that I know that I am. I am resilient, you know, beyond anything else. So when the unknown comes your way, you you feel that you're able to back yourself? I assume that, that it's just a matter of time. But that's been built year in and year out. Like even in racing, I used to have so many nerves when I'd take the start line. I'd be I'd be thrown up, you know, like and even, you know, getting through the idea of convincing myself to be able to take on something like the track, you know, like Kokoda. You know, all of those things were, were, were just built from the ground up and you know, you just get to build on that platform that you've set yesterday and then you finish today and you, you've hopefully built on it again. And sometimes you've torn it down and you've lost a bit of the, the, the self-image or the self-belief, but then you just line up again tomorrow and try and build it again. Wheelchair Marathon is the, the event that you've, you know, surpassed so many people in. And, you know, the the numbers are quite astonishing. 58 marathons, if I'm wrong, please correct me. 58 marathons, 37 wins, 16 places surely that's got to put you in up there with the most successful athletes of any sport ever (laughs) mate when you're in it you try not to think about it like today i've knocked over 45 k's and i've reminded myself while i'm doing it that i'm doing it because i need to improve that i need i need to get better because i'm not at that reflection yet there's still more out there and i know i've had a good run you know i know i've had a good run but I'm not done yet, so okay. and, right. until until I'm there, I can barely. I, I I just couldn't see myself comparing myself to anyone because I just I, I'm not there. I'm not done. Okay. What what do you like about the wheelchair marathon? When I get in a, a race chair and I do, I start the race. I've had a few times, maybe only three, where I just feel perfect. You know, I feel like my body has has been made for this thing, and I have I have kind of honed it to be to be perfect at it as well. And and you know that feeling. It's rare, and sometimes you might spend decades trying to get that one feeling, but oh, it's just incredible. And then also, I guess, when you see, when you turn around and you finish the wheelchair marathon and you've raced one where there's there's 400 guys in it in chairs, and you go back to the finish, and there's 400 empty day chairs. These wheelchairs, they're the things that give us so much freedom, but sometimes there's a lot of confinement happening in that chair as well, and there's a lot of freedom when you're out there and actually involved in sport and you're flying through the streets and you know it's a pretty it's a pretty good feeling mate you talked about you talked about training before 
you did 45 Ks today. Is that like a, a regular day for your training? How many days a week are you, are you doing? Yeah, so I'm six, six days a week and I do two sessions a day mostly. Uh, so this morning was, was uh, 25 Ks doing kilometer efforts on the track. This afternoon it was, uh, it was 48 second um, efforts. So we did about 17 K. So we're knocked out nearly 50 today. And then tomorrow I go out and I do four um, K repeats, mm. or I think that's a, just over eight minute efforts on the track tomorrow. And then I do a long, easy push in the afternoon. So the every week is different, but it's all about trying to push what you did the month before or the year before. And, you know, that whole continual improvement thing. But this is the kind of work I'm guessing that you need to be do to find that place of your body being perfect that you were discussing before that, that place of almost, is there serenity when you find yourself in that space? Oh, sometimes even just when you're getting close to that level of performance, you can, you can really feel even for a month. It's like if you tried to take control of what you're doing, you would slow yourself down. It's like you, you, you just switch off and you, and you let instinct kind of take over. And when you're rolling like that, you know, you can roll a full month where every time you get in your chair, you, you don't even think and you can just feel that you're building this momentum for a for a really good run. And and sometimes it's the sometimes the exhilarating. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The thing as well is that you are borderline. You are, you are so close to being awesome and also fallen over and just being you know completely fatigued and 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 really just fallen in a pile so you know walking that edge is you know it's exhilarating it's it's challenging uh, we talk with some um, professional athletes on this show from from time to time i do get a similar answer from a lot of them but i wonder what are men in the in the paralympic teams like about discussing their health do they do they talk about it do they get themselves checked Look, I think that we're a lot more open than what the majority of the community is because we're used to dealing with, you know, that there's such a strong, a long tail of complicated lives in in the Paralympic team. You know, like guys who have who have who have recovered from from cancer or or have been at the edge of 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 losing everything, but bounced back to become pretty impressive kind of humans. And there is still that you know a bit of the macho kind of crap that goes on, but I do think that we are a little bit more aware of the reality of our health. That we are, 
we are always on a fine line, you know. And I know that our team situation, we have a great kind of unit. We we toured through Boston when the we were racing one when the bombs went off there a couple of years ago, and you know I was about 150 meters past it, and within 60 seconds after the the explosions, I got a text message, and it was from a competitor who was three hours before I was trying to hammer during the race. But the immediate thing he did was got on his phone, sent me a message, where are you? Stay away from the finish line. People are dying here. And he was overlooking the thing at a, at a function that he was at, and he couldn't get past that. He's got two little girls at home, and he saw, he saw things that I think he was, he was seeing his kids in, in the, the reality that was in front of him. And, you know, our group, we had to race again seven days later in London, and our group got together and we just didn't leave him, you know. Like, we, we looked after him because at the end of the day, you know, what's the use if we don't, you know. And, and this guy who is your, your major competitor and guy that you try and, you know, tear to pieces on the start line, you, you, you're part of this community that, that needs to be there for each other because you've got far more in common than what you don't. And, you know, I think that that showed me how close we are and, and, and how willing we are to kind of look after each other if needed. And it seems like that macho thing you talked about doesn't really get in the way then. You, you, you all know what's important. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think we all know that whatever we've got now can be lost in a second. You know, that's life. And everything that we have is going to go. So, you know, why not just make sure that we look after each other a bit better while we're, while we're getting there? Mate, you, you mentioned before that you, you work as a, as a phys ed teacher. What's that like? good it gives me a chance to actually talk about real substance with kids you can actually take your life in there and and you can talk resilience you know and you can you can sit there and talk about the times when you were you know 13 14 and I wasn't sure how I viewed myself you know and you talk about how how reminding yourself that you're you know really positive kind of self-image stuff how you can really get in there and and make a difference to a kid I haven't taught as much as I would have liked but uh, life has kind of taken over but when, you're, when I do get in there, it's good to be in that subject where you can really tackle substance. Are kids just kind of kids? Do they, do they ask questions that adults might be afraid to ask you? Oh, mate, a lot of my work has been done out in regional and remote Australia. So when you jump into a classroom with, with 30 Year 7 Indige kids, there are not a lot of uh, things that are off limits. You know, the, the guys are, um, are fairly upfront, but they kind of, once you explain it to them, they're, they're pretty good with especially with the disability, you know, like they, they see the difference and they're very quick to pounce on it. But then once also they know that you're, you're confident with it and comfortable with it, no matter what classroom you're in, if they see a guy that's kind of owning difference, they're owning the person that they're in, I think that's a big statement to make in front of kids and they kind of warm to that. I guess, you know, that's, that's the same for any of us though. If we, if we own what we are, if we accept what we are, we become so much more powerful than if we resist what we are, isn't that right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I do speak about disability, but I see, like, I don't, I don't really see it two separate rooms, you know, like I see we're all on that kind of scale and, you know, people may see disability, but you may not see the underlying kind of things that people are carrying around. And both of them can be, you know, big kind of factors in you kind of being part of community and being part of mainstream life, but also both can be sorted. They can be looked after, you know, if you're able to speak about things openly and, and approach, you know, 
approach doctors or approach the, the medical kind of industry with any issue that you have in your life. Both can be owned. Mate, you, um, you've you crawled the Kokoda track, raised money for Movember. What, what drew you towards Movember? Yeah, I, I, mate, it was, that was a hell of a time. It was a crazy time. Um, I don't recommend anyone trying to crawl it. It was just so hard and it was the perfect storm. It was me and my brothers and a lot of cousins and we we'd all just lost a family member. And I know that he, his direct family were familiar with his struggles with mental health, but I, I personally wasn't. And we all spoke about doing something for his favourite charity, which Movember was then supporting, and it was men's health and mental health. Yeah, it just fit perfectly. It was it was the idea that a bloke in a wheelchair, if he feels he can look up and ask for for help from the people around him, he'll think that he can he can crawl the Kokoda track. You know, like that that ability to be able to look at the people around you and ask for help if needed. That that changes lives. That empowers lives. And that that saves lives, you know. And and I grew up in this environment where I where I knew, you know, that I could do that. And I feel a lot more, I feel a lot stronger, a lot more complete because of it. And I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. But losing a family member is is traumatic for anyone. But when that happened, what kind of conversations did you have with each other? It sounds like that you weren't so. You, you mentioned you weren't so familiar with the mental health aspect of of things. What kind of conversations did you have right after that? Well, uh just conversations of how much we we loved each other really and i hope that kokoda was about reminding ourselves of that i just wanted to speak to all of my family and just let them know how grateful i am for them and how how much i i love who they are how proud i am i guess that i i grew up in that community and that that family and how much stronger i am because of them and that was that was the majority of the conversations that happened yeah. and a lot of a lot of tears and you know and all that but as well but it was um forever that triggered us to i guess appreciate each other and you know i still i still miss pete you know and i still love him, you know i love him to bits yeah, he was a he was a, a beautiful bloke you know and he always was the one guy you walked into a room and he had just the uh, just the biggest smile on his face and he would he would bend over backwards to make you feel comfortable and and I always felt so loved from him and I just always you know just wanted to kind of be a part of something that projected that and so with that in your heart you and your and your brothers and some mates you went to Papua New Guinea and you decided that you know what's a good idea I'm going to go and crawl the Kokoda track which is a it's like a like a, a single file trail through the most inhospitable stinking hot jungle it's about 90 <laughs> something kilometers long it's the site of a landmark uh, battle between Australian and uh, Japanese forces in World War II and it was a big deal you know because Japan was moving south to take Port Moresby to try and take Australia Australia was like not a no not an hour watch a lot of damage a lot of loss on both sides people try and hike it and it's a harrowing expedition. You hear all the time in Australia about 55-year-old businessman has airlifted out of the Kokoda track as he fell over. But you crawled it. <laughs> well, in the lead-up to it, like half a dozen people passed away that year on the track. It was a nervous time, but I felt confident on the pieces that I was putting together. No one in my family said I was crazy when I said it. And they all kind of believed that it happened. So why, why wouldn't I? had <laughs> then... When everyone else was locked into it as well, I just started to started to put pieces down. You know, I started to teach myself to crawl again. Really, knocking over just flights of stairs at a time, and that whole twelve months, it did feel like I was ripping life to pieces a bit. But I was also, again, I remember just a few phone calls that my brothers 
you know, they, they they reminded me that we were we were building something that was impressive. You know, that was that was worth doing, and it kept me on the kept me on the path and on the track, mate. There is just so much emotion tied up on that thing, and there was so much tied emotion tied up in our personal trip. But then, then the the interaction with the local boys, the porters there, the the PNG people, mate. I've never met a, a people so so strong, so beautiful, so hard, resilient. You know, and yeah, I I come away with from that track by far the the better for it. I got a lot more out of that interaction than than what anyone did out of kind of watching it. Was it as challenging for you mentally as it was physically? It was brutal. It it was just brutal. The hardest part of the day the trek was between stopping the crawling every afternoon and going to sleep. That that period of time where the doubt was the loudest and the hardest work that I had to do was remind myself that I could do it again tomorrow. And that those hours were by far the most challenging. Once I start crawling, you just you deal with it. You know, you try and switch off from to the discomfort. You um, when it gets to the points where you you can't go any further, you look to the people around you. And you've got a got a hand through the the swamps, you know, and got a hand through the, the periods of time where the you know the mud was just completely inaccessible for me. Um, then at night, you know, that was just that was tough work. No one goes through this life alone, mate. Now, your family and friends, they can't train for you, but can you tell me what role your family and your friends have in your success? Well, firstly, they offer me safety, you know, and they offer me a, an environment that I know I can go back to and I, I know no matter what happens that nothing's changed. That platform to be able to then bounce off and do whatever it is that you want to do, it makes life a lot easier because you may bite off more than you can chew and you may fall over flat on your face. But it doesn't matter back there. They they offer me belief as well that they give me the idea that that I am they that when I do throw the things out there that are pretty crazy. They assume that it's just going to get done as well. And then just just being there, you know, being there to take a phone call, being there to call me, and you know that that's underrated. The person that will call to see how you're going, the person that will answer the phone at three in the morning when you're drunk dialing them, you know, that's, they're, they're definitely the underrated people in your life. And You know, with, this is a show that focuses on men and, and men's health. So I'm going to ask you a very important man question. You've been married a while now. What are your secrets to handling the ups and downs of a long-term relationship? Jeez. I don't know. Um, no, I've never really, I've never really <laughs> thought, thought about it. Um, maybe making sure that you, uh, making sure that you take the time to actually have fun. Well, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap of coming home and just disappearing into the couch or whatever's on the TV. And I know that I, that we have a lot of fun when we decide to just do something together and, you know, you gotta, you know, seek out those things because a lot of the times they don't come on their own. You've actually got to make that effort to, to instigate it. You mentioned at the start of the show that we, we might get interrupted by a 12-month-old. I might have heard some echoes in the background. But what what's changed about you personally? What's changed about you since you've become a father? Um, oh, well, also back on the last one, I, I should, she might give me the ass next week, so I might be put out to be a liar. <laughs> but I'm pretty, pretty grateful that she's put up with me for until now. Um, I'm a lot more vulnerable since Harry. Yeah. I'm a lot more vulnerable. Um his happiness or his his pain is is mine, you know, and I know that's from here on in. There's a lot of hard times that I'm not going to be able to get him through, and I and it's my job to make sure that he's. I don't think he's sheltered from it, but I, I think that he has the ability to deal with it. And 
I even feel now that it's uh, that desire to shelter him from the knocks and the bruises. And he's only, he's 14 months now, so he's fallen over everywhere. But they're his falls. And he's he's fine. He'll deal with them. There are going to be 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. Hopefully, it'd be nice to see 50 years of falls and 50 years of getting back up. But I'm grateful that mum let me fall and get back up and provide that love and support to know that he can. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. We end each interview with the same three questions for everyone, though. All right. So when it comes to Movember, what kind of mo do you grow? Um, I tried. I tried the uh, the pencil. It turned out to be the catfish. It was a horrible bloody thing. Um, I've tried. I've tried the Ned Flanders. That was okay, but I wasn't allowed near schools. Um, <laughs> the chopper. The chopper is the one that I have been. The the handlebars. You know. Mm. Um, I think in the US they call it a Fu Manchu or something, don't they? But the handlebars. I uh, I I seem to be able to hold better. So. It doesn't. I try and do gigs during November and all the way through for the last six years. Every important function has landed during that month, and I look. <laughs> there are so many pictures of me looking like some seedy biker, but I think it's the the closest one that I can pull off. But the conversations that come out of the moustache, what are they like? The conversations are heavy. I think because people have recognised the stories that I've spoken about publicly, people in the street will stop us and talk about their own experiences with men's health and because because i publicly shared my story a lot of people share back and you know if that month is the first step for them if that conversation is the first conversation that they have around that awesome that's been one of the most lasting and memorable things that i could have ever have done there's a lot of people that that speak about i give my dad a call or nice nice mustache mate I've, i got my prostate checked last week which still makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable but the whole men's health thing, mate, it's, you know, we can't, we can't just have it hidden still. You know, we can't just keep overlooking all these things that are happening and, and just say it's normal. We can't have so many young men losing their life. We just can't. It's got to be spoken about and it's got to be brought to the public's attention. And that's why I'll grow a moustache every November from here on in. <laughs> uh, if you could pick up the phone and uh, talk to 18-year-old Kurt, what would you tell him? I, I couldn't even pick up the phone. I just couldn't. Uh, I couldn't give better advice than than what I was given. I just couldn't. And I know you've answered this question seven times during this interview, but uh, I'll ask it one last time. What do your friends mean to you? Friends are, friends are my safety. Awesome. Kurt, it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to speak with you, mate. Thank you so much for taking time out of your evening uh, with your family. No, not a worry, man. was Kurt Fernley. You can follow him on Twitter. Let him know that you heard him on the show. K-U-R-T-F-E-A-R-N-L-E-Y. Thank you so much for being here. If you like what you heard, please rate this show and comment on the show in iTunes. Follow Movember on Facebook. And of course, you can get any other info that you need at MovemberRadio.com. From a very sunny, leafy suburb in Sydney, I wish you a fantastic week. Thank you so much for being here. Look after yourself. I'll talk to you next time. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.